0: Hello everyone, we have Miriam Steinberg on today's episode. She's the creator of Catalog Baby. I am so excited to hear a little bit more about her, her story, what she's doing within the community. Miriam, I am just going to toss it at you, start wherever you'd like.
1: Great. So hi everybody. Um, As Shelly said, my name is Miriam um, and I am now 46 And, uh, when I started my fertility journey, I was 40 years old and it was one of those like, holy shit moments. I kind of forgot to do all the things I needed to do to, uh, make a baby. And I, I had known for the previous, at least 10 years that I 150% wanted a family and I wanted kids and, and I just kind of let my career take over. And I um, I ended up burning out really badly uh, with that. I was organizing a festival Um, and I was dating somebody. We hadn't dated for very long, but I was really stressed out because I was like, oh man, is he ready for kids? It's so early in the relationship. I'm so desperate for kids. I'm, you know, like willing to settle for for somebody that likes me and I basically like them and, (laughs) and it turned out he didn't want kids or he wasn't ready at all for them for several years. And, um, around eight months into the relationship we ended up breaking up because mostly because of that, there were other factors as well, but, uh, yeah, it was mainly that. And so I found myself at 40 years old being in a position where I didn't know where, what was going to happen and historically I'd always had really long breaks between relationships and I thought to myself that I just didn't have time anymore and I never wanted to be a single mom by choice. Um, I didn't even know that that term existed at that point anyways but I'd always wanted to do it with a partner and have somebody to share it with uh, the whole experience of having babies and oohing and awing at them and sharing responsibilities and going through the good times and the bad times together and that just was not in my cards and so I told myself that by the time I hit Ford uh, by the time I hit my next birthday if I hadn't found somebody I was just gonna do it I'm gonna just uh, you know take the plunge um, and but I did decide to call the fertility clinic just in case, because I heard that there was big wait lines um, to, to get in to see a doctor. And fortunately I did, because it was a six month waiting list. And by the time I hit my birthday, I hadn't met somebody, but I at least had an appointment to see the fertility doctor. And then, became, then, then, then everything started. I, everything tested out normal, everything was great. I, even though I was in my forties, they had absolutely zero uh, reasons for concern. And so when I went in for my first IUI, I actually got pregnant the first time and it was amazing. It was so exciting. I was so happy, I jumping for joy. And uh, the day before my eight week ultrasound, that all changed, and it was the start of a very, very long, very difficult road, and I had my first miscarriage, uh, which was devastating. Um, Everything came shattering down, as so many people can attest. When you miscarry, it's, you know, you lose confidence, or it's like you you question your body, you question all the whys and the hows and, and the, the fairness of it all. And, and uh, yeah, it was, I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy, that's for sure. Um, but once I recovered from that, which was actually pretty quick that time, I wanted to start again right away. And it, just, I went after IUI after IUI after IUI and nothing worked. Um, I switched donors, nothing worked. Um I actually did also one DIY with a friend of mine, um, which is actually a really funny story, where I was, I had gone to a, a blood clinic to get my tests initially, and I bumped into a friend, and she was pregnant, and I was like, oh yeah, I'm starting on my journey as well, and I'm actually looking for a sperm donor, and all of a sudden her partner piped up and was like, I'll be a donor, <laughs> and I was like, what? okay, um, (laughs) let's talk about it. And so we ended up talking about it and it seemed like all three of us were on the same page. And uh, for the first several IUIs, like I'd said, I'd gone with an anonymous donor. And uh, when it came to try the DIY one, it was only because the fertility clinic was actually closed and I knew I was going to be ovulating. So I called him up and hoping that he was still into it because it's several months in, later, um, and he was. So he and his partner went off into a room and did their thing and came out with a cup of sperm, and, <laughs> and then I did my thing, and it was one of the funniest moments actually of my whole journey. Um, this is actually awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so I love it. Yeah uh and actually it, as a side note I felt one of the reasons one of the things I did because I didn't have a partner was I got a friend of mine to photograph and videotape everything um just to kind of create that connection to something even if it wasn't a partner at least I could look back on the photos and the videos and and be like oh yeah that happened and kind of like talk to myself as <laughs> like I looked at these or share them with friends or share them with my family. Um, and so my friend happened to be there as well. I'd asked her to come for the DIY one and she, she, uh, she came with me and she, as I'm like injecting the sperm into me and we're both laughing our faces off and, and it's like, how do I do this? Do I do it standing up? Do I do it lying down? And I started doing it standing up. She's like, wait, does this, this is it not going to just drip out?
0: I'm like, great. Okay. I'm going to lie down. (laughs) did you okay I have a question is it like the movies did you did you use like a turkey baster or what did you use
1: so I had no idea initially what to what to use so I called up a friend of mine who had done it the DIY way, and she's like oh yeah I did it and hers worked right away like she got pregnant twice oh that's using and she's like I used a five mill milliliter syringe and uh, blah 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 blah. She went on with her story of how she did it, and I and I got this idea in my head. Like I was obsessed with the fact that it had to be five milliliters. <laughs> <laughs> it couldn't be ten. It couldn't be three. It had to be the five milliliter syringe. It couldn't be anything else. So I called like every single pharmacy in Vancouver, and they either didn't have one in stock or they didn't distribute them. I think they were concerned about drug use. Um, There's like a million, or they only had like Like 10 milliliter syringes. And it was like this crazy gong show. And then finally I came across one pharmacy that had a five milliliter syringe. I'm like, oh my God. Okay. Keep it for me. I'll be there tomorrow morning. First thing. So so my friend and I go to the pharmacy at 7am or 6am, 7am, something like that. And I'm like, I'm here for my syringe. Oh my God. Awesome. And the pharmacist is like, okay, here you go. And uh yeah, anyway, so we came home and and so I used a five milliliter syringe per <laughs> recommended. And I later found out obviously that it was such a silly thing to be obsessed about. <laughs> So, yeah, that's, that's what I, ate. that's what I used. <laughs> I did not use an actual turkey baster. <laughs> and she told me I needed to use, a, that she had used a turkey baster. I was absolutely obsessed with finding it the perfect turkey baster. Oh
0: my gosh, too funny. Yeah.
1: <laughs> um, and then she's, like, googling, like, how do you do it as I'm, you know, like, trying to figure out how to do it. And, and she's like, okay, you should orgasm now because apparently this helps suck the semen into in, up your cervix and into your uterus. I'm like, okay, I can do that. She's like, okay, I'm out of here. <laughs> I'm done, I'm good. I'm like, okay, see ya, love you. Um, but unfortunately, after all of that, it didn't take. Um, and when the clinic reopened post holidays, I went back and uh, switched donors. By then I had switched donors to another anonymous donor. And on my seventh try, I got pregnant. And, you know, it was like one of those really wistful things because on the one hand, I am so excited that it finally worked again. And on the other hand, it was right around then that it was supposed to have been the due date for the first baby that I had gotten pregnant with. So it was like this really interesting and, uh, yeah, wistful, I don't know how else to describe it, moment of um, these two things coming together. Um, But the pregnancy went great. Everything was wonderful. And then because of my age, it was recommended that I uh, got, some testing to make sure that the baby was genetically viable and everything was okay. And, um, so I did, and there's three different tests that you can do. There's a SIPS test, which is, um, kind of the lowest, uh, percentage of, of, uh, accuracy, I guess. Um, but NBC it's free. And if you get flagged for that, you can go in for the NIPT test, which has a 99% accuracy, supposedly. Um, and uh, if you get flagged there, you can choose whatever choice you're going to do um, if you have a, a baby that has genetic issues. Um, or you can go for an amnio, which I was absolutely terrified of doing. So I was like, I'm absolutely not doing an amnio. Um, So I did the SIPS test and my baby got flagged with a trisomy and that was absolutely really, really difficult news to take. Um, and it also happened to be on the day, I found this out on the day that my grandmother died and I was really close with my grandmother and she was very, um, kind of involved peripherally. Um, with my journey. By then she was, she was mostly in bed all the time. Um, cause she was 94 at the time. And, uh, yeah, so as, but I'd go to her place all the time and kind of talk about where I was at with things. Um, and it was the day that she died that I discovered this. Um, and I just absolutely melted down and started doing a whole bunch of research of what are my options and what does that actually mean for the baby and what would happen if I continued with the pregnancy Uh, what does it mean to terminate the pregnancy and I talked to so many people about this Uh, and my midwife also was amazing and and helped me kind of navigate the choppy waters and and figure out next steps medically and emotionally. And she helped me make a pro and con list. And um, so I ended up going for the NIPT test and that also came back as 99%. Yes. Uh, It was a trisomy. Um, And I was like, okay, there's 1% chance. I need to know absolutely for sure. And so that's when I decided I was going to try and lay my fears aside and go for that amnio. And the amnio also came back with, That, with that news and it's supposed to be conclusive so I again spent a few weeks trying to figure out you know like as time is going by your your baby's getting older and you can start feeling a little bit more and you're getting more attached to it and so the decision actually becomes harder and harder and um And I can't ever say that the decision, that I made a decision. It was more like the decision kind of happened to me or with me. And, um, and one of the best pieces of advice that people gave me was, uh, that it would be whatever, whatever decision I came to would be the best decision for myself. I, I, it's it's hard to like when i say it now it sounds really like a it sounds selfish but it's not um because it's not about the world it's about you and it's about the baby and it's about their chances of survival and their chances for a, a good life and and nothing makes it easier no decision that you make for me anyways made it easier I was just as I think I would have been just as heartbroken either way um and but I decided to terminate um and it's a two-day process because by then I was 17 weeks um, and they need to open up your cervix so they put in it's called laminaria and they just shove like six of them up your cervix to and it helps basically it it absorbs moisture and as it absorbs moisture it it expands and your cervix slowly expands over 24 hours. Um, And then you go in for surgery. Um, And uh, yeah, that's what I did. Um, And it was absolutely categorically brutal. And as the doctor is just about to put the first leminary in, I just broke down, like my whole body screamed no and I, but my head was still yes. And my heart was still yes. And everything was still yes. And I had to stop. And the the nurse was like, you can continue. You can, we can't, um, we can't keep going. We have like this long list of women who, that we need to get through today. So you need to take a break. You need to take a couple hours and figure it out. and then come back to us and let us know if you want to keep going with this or not. So I did. And I called in my sister and she came to the hospital and, and helped me kind of like work through it all. And, and I did go through with it. Um, and it was really hard. It was, it was probably one of the most difficult things i would ever had to do ever in my entire life, emotionally, physically, like all of it. Um, and that's, so after that, I decided that I couldn't, IUI anymore. I had to start with an embryo that I knew was genetically viable. Um, And so I switched to IVF and uh, I ended up having to do three rounds of IVF because the first two had zero viable embryos. And the third one, I had one viable embryo and I was so excited. I was like, yay, my body works after all. Yay, this is so great. Um, and I got it transferred in and then I promptly miscarried my one last embryo. Um, and that also is, you know, as you can imagine, was absolutely devastating because you question like your whole womanhood, your whole self, your whole like what did I do wrong in my <clears throat> in the years past and and why is my body not working and and by then I had had you know like two of my mis- or the the termination and one of my other miscarriages was they had left products of conception inside, so I actually had had to do two d and e's and two d and c's and by then my uterus was just like probably all used up and scraped raw and um, yeah, so I, I had to make another decision. Um, do I keep going with another IVF? Do I go with egg donors? And I also came to the realization that the next possible step can only happen when you're 150 percent ready for it where you feel like you you can't go on with the current way that you're trying um and everybody's limits are different you know some people stop after one ivf i stopped after threes i've met women who go until you know i she was just about to do her 12th ivf and i'm like oh my god how do you do this like the needles the hormones the craziness the the weights, the the disappointments, the joys—if if it happens—but then if it doesn't, if you miscarry an embryo that you had by IVF, and it got genetically tested, even like well, any miscarriage—it's like this constant devastation and and okay, rallying up and pulling your bootstraps up and trying to find sources of hope. Um, I was like I wow wow like my hat's off to you (laughs) that is seriously brave but really it's like everything is brave doing one IVF is brave doing one IUI is brave doing whatever your journey is it's it's a brave one Um, and it really kind of hit home to me at that moment Um, and I realized I was done with IVF I was done with obviously with IUI and, and I decided to go with egg donors. Um, and that was really kind of bizarre. It was bizarre trying to find a sperm donor through a bank, just cause you're, you're looking at it and it's very practical, right? It's, it's all about like, is the guy healthy? Uh, is the guy, do they have the look that you want? Um, And then for me, so it was, for me, it was health, looks, and intelligence. Um, And it was really important for me to have as much information about the donor as possible. And it was important for me, for them to be open donors, because I want my kids to be able to eventually contact them. I think it's really, really important. Um, But then, like, trying to find an egg donor, it's like this whole other level, because you want, for me... I absolutely had to have the egg donor kind of look like me, had to have brown hair, ideally brown eyes, but if they had blue eyes, that was okay too because my mom has gray eyes and my grandparents all have blue or gray eyes. Um, so that wasn't such an, a thing, but they kind of had to look a little bit Jewishy, kind of, sort of, <laughs> because um, I'm Jewish. and and um, And yeah, so it was like, I actually had to go through the, the egg donor um, bank that I actually went to, I actually had to wait a few, like go through the catalog several times as they kept adding more women to it because nothing was quite hitting the spot for me. Um, and the other thing, like I, I mentioned the fact that I was Jewish, it was one, one of the things that came up was like, well, if the egg donor is not Jewish, does that make the baby Jewish? And I actually went out and asked a rabbi about it. And and it's interesting because I'm not religious at all. I feel attached to my culture, but I'm, you know, like I don't go to synagogue. I don't, I'm, I can barely remember that it's Friday at this point um, to light the Shabbat candles. Um, but it was still kind of an important fact for me to figure out. And when I talked to the rabbi, it was really interesting because they're like, It's actually nothing to do with the donors. It's where did the baby gestate? If the baby gestated inside your body, then that, and because it's matrilineal, that makes the baby Jewish. So I found that really, really interesting as well. Um, And kind of a relief in some ways. Um, And then the other thing that kind of got me more okay with uh, using an egg donor was finding out about epigenetics, because one of the things that I was really concerned about was, you know, like, how am I gonna be connected to this baby if this baby doesn't look like me, even if the donor sort of looks like me, it's possible that baby looks absolutely nothing like me or doesn't, there isn't this connection with them. Epigenetics is all about, like, do, um, is which, even though the DNA strands are completely different, it stays completely different, but certain one, certain DNA, uh, what's it called, the, the, anyways, some wake up, some don't, and it is influenced by the environment in which it grows. Um, So it could be that if, um, if the donor is like six foot five, but I'm only five four, that somehow the, the gene for, for <laughs> I'm totally explaining this poorly, but um, that that will go to sleep and another gene will wake up that will make the baby short, the the kid shorter. I don't know. Anyways, it's something to that effect, and it, um, so that that was also really interesting and and uh, made me more comfortable with that knowing that. The baby gestating inside of me would influence which one of their genes would wake up and which ones would fall asleep and and just not sleep but not be not wake up and that's
0: super cool. I yeah, it. it's
1: really interesting, right? Um, and so I chose my egg donor. and I was really excited about her and um. Its really weird knowing that an embryo is being created and you have absolutely no visual of any of the biological parts that go with it, um, and that your first your first visual of anything is when you go to the clinic and you see the embryo on the screen just before it gets transferred into you and that's really it's really cool. Um, but like when you're going through IVF, you see. The eggs being sucked out of you, so at least you know that it's coming from your body and and you have that physical connection to it and for me, I've yet like the egg retrievals were really, really painful there the doctors were like, "Oh, yeah, most people think it you know it feels like a little pinch and it's no big deal, and blah blah blah, I'm like, yeah, lies <laughs> for me anyways, it was so painful. they had just like up the drugs as much as they could for me um, but it was really cool seeing the follicles being emptied and seeing the eggs on the screen as they're uh, dealing with that. And when you're using an egg donor, you don't get any of that connection and you don't have that really intimate um, experience with the eggs. Um, and so it's only, and with me, like they, they, they fertilized the eggs and the sperm, but my body still wasn't ready. So they had to actually freeze the embryos. So again, you have this disconnect of even more distance. So it's not like you're going in day five or day six after with a fresh embryo um, and getting it transferred. The embryos are being created and then frozen. And it's not until your body's actually fully ready that they get defrosted and then transferred over. So um, anyways, long story short, the first donor... Um, she had only one embryo that was viable, which was really odd to me because I was told that the statistics were a lot higher for, uh, egg donors because they're a lot younger than I was. Um, and they also, a lot of them also have a history of, uh, donating their eggs. Um, but anyways, she only had one. So I got that one transferred and again, I miscarried. And you know, at that point it's like, wow, what do you do? What do you, this is impossible. And I just lost all hope, um, but I wasn't ready to give up yet. So I had to figure out how do I keep going with no hope, but knowing that my biological clock is still kicking my ass and being like do it you must do this you must do this (laughs) um so I ended up actually asking all my friends and my family to kind of hold the hope for me because I didn't have space for it I couldn't muster it up at all I was done I was was empty um I wasn't done with the journey but I was I, I just had nothing I had nothing um and that was probably the best thing I could have done because that took it off my plate because it feels like a risk kind of a responsibility to, to yourself and to your body and to the future hopeful baby to have this hope. And, and so when you have to dredge it from the bottom of nothing and you're trying to find it, you're spending so much energy trying to collect the hope that you don't have the energy to, to heal your body and to heal your mind and to heal your soul as you're going on to the next attempt. Um, and passing it off to other people, I knew that the hope existed and I didn't have to worry about it. And I could focus on other things. I could focus on healing myself um, and get my body and my mind ready for the next transfer. Unfortunately, my egg donor, had no more eggs left, no more batches left at the bank. She wasn't coming in for any more. So I had to choose yet another donor. Um, And I did. And with her, I ended up with five viable embryos, which was super exciting. And I, uh, I had asked a few times actually, as I was starting the IVF process, if it was possible to transfer two at once, just in case so that at least one will stick. And they'd always told me, no, 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 no. You're getting them PGS tested or CCS tested. Um, So we don't transfer viable, we don't transfer more than one viable embryo at a time because the odds of them sticking and staying are so high. And when I went in for my test to make sure that my lining and my hormones were in place, the doctor, called me later on to tell me that everything was great and that it was going to happen tomorrow. And she also said, and we're going to transfer too this time. (laughs) I was like, "Uh, say what now? (laughs) Um, I was walking down a busy street at the time and, and I quickly walked down a a side street because I couldn't believe what I was hearing. She's like, well, you know, with your history, it's been really hard. And, and, uh, if we transfer two, you'll have a better chance of at least one of them sticking and staying. And we'll put you on like our most intense protocol you could, we have. We'll put you on, you know, not just the progesterone oil and the progesterone tablets and the esterase and but we'll also uh, put you on the intralipid IVs. We'll put you on the prednisone and um, blood thinners and all this like giant list of medications that. Supposedly, help uh, embryos stick and stay. It's like, okay, okay, um, all right, two. Um, well, I guess better two than none. Um, and that's kind of where I left it. And the next day, I went in for the transfer, and both of the embryos got transferred in. And the next day, I woke up, and there's, and it's happened a few times with the other pregnancies. Because this is my fifth, this was my fifth pregnancy at this time. By this time, Um, there's like a little twinkle in my belly. I was like, "Oh, you guys both stuck! Oh my god!" And obviously, like I had no scientific evidence to prove that this was actually the case. Just instinctively, I just knew. I just knew. And uh, then a week later, no that That did get confirmed with my beta test that I was pregnant, but they couldn't tell me whether it was one or two that had stayed uh It's just your hormone level rising and and uh and there's no way of telling until you get your ultrasound several weeks later, but at least my my intuition that I was pregnant was true, so yay. Um, And then a week later, I was lying on my bed and these two names came floating past. And one of them was a boy's name and one of them was a girl's name. And they were never names, they were names that I'd never really considered because they were, I was hoping to get names, use names that were uncommon. Um, I didn't want, I didn't really want to know other people who had the same name that my babies would have. But when those two names came, I knew a bunch of people with both of those names. And I was like, oh man, but I don't know, they just showed up and it's, it feels like these are the names of the babies. And also like, holy crap, I'm having a boy and a girl, what? <laughs> um, and again, this is just intuition speaking. There's no way of knowing until you see a little penis or you see a little vagina and, and at an ultrasound, if you even get to see that. Um, And then I looked up the names, the meaning of the names and one of them meant laughter. And the other one, so Isaac was the boy's name and that means laughter. And Abigail, who's my daughter, uh, means father's joy. And even though there wasn't a father in the picture, the fact that both of them revolved around happiness just made my heart explode because you can't be alive you can't have joy and you can't have happiness, you can't have laughter without being alive. And there was something about that that just really confirmed to me that my babies were gonna make it. And, and it turns out I was right. <laughs> um, when the degen- genetic counselor called me weeks and weeks and weeks later, I think like two or three months, three months later uh, she asked me if I wanted to know the sex of the the babies. And I was like, yes, yes, I do. But also, no, I don't. But also I want to know if I was correct with the, uh, with the names that came by. And she's like, okay, well, why don't you tell me what you think it is? And I'll tell you if you're right. (laughs) Okay. So I was like, I think I'm having a boy and a girl. She's like, oh my God, how did you know? (laughs) Yes, you're having a boy and a girl. Um, so yeah, I was really, really excited about that. It was, it's such, such a trippy thing when things like that happen. Um, so the pregnancy kept going and I was so careful. I didn't do anything. I didn't bend down. I didn't, I didn't go running. I didn't do any real exercise, like nothing. Um, because I was terrified that I was going to lose the babies. Um. And then at 18 weeks, my water broke. And I didn't know really what it was at first. There's just, I was walking into my bedroom to get dressed from a shower and there's water all over the place. And I was terrified. And I sat on my bed and I was like, what is going on here? What is it? And I smelled it and it's like, it's not pee. And it doesn't look like some other random body fluid. And I'm like, holy shit, is this, um, is this my water? Like, what's going on? Um, But then it kind of stopped. And there were a few days where there wasn't anything happening. I was just like extra, extra, extra careful. And I went for my, my, uh, 20 week ultrasound where they check to make sure the babies have all the body parts that are needed and stuff. And she didn't let me look at the screen at all, the technician, which made me really mad. (laughs) Um, And when she went to go take the images to the ultrasound doctor, um, she was gone for a really long time. And then when she came back, she was like, Get thee to the hospital, and I actually had to. I'm like, can I have a image of my babies, please? Because you know, (laughs) she's like, okay, fine. Hold on. She said very, very grumpily, and she stomped off and came back with one single photocopy of an ultrasound. I didn't know what I was looking at. She's like, your babies are alive, but you need to go to the hospital. And I made it to my car, and I just broke down I didn't I was just terrified all the PTSD and all the pain and the grief of all my previous losses I'm just kind of getting emotional right now um just came flooding back and and now I had two in my belly and and like it's hard enough losing one what if you lose two at the same time like oh it was just like it was killing me Um, And I called my sister, who's also a doctor of Chinese medicine, and she does acupuncture, and she's like, why don't you come in, we'll give you a treatment, get you to relax a little bit, and then you can go to the hospital afterwards, because anyway, you look at it, there's probably nothing you can do, and you're not cramping, you're not, there's no contractions. Um, So I did that, and it helped a little bit, I relaxed, I stopped like my anxiety was just through the roof and the acupuncture just helped me kind of calm down a, enough to be able to make it to the hospital in one piece. Um, and they, they did some tests. They're like, yeah, no, you're fine. It's not amniotic fluid. You're fine. Just take it super easy. Um, and then more water came out and more water. And every time I went to the hospital to emergency, they, they would do an emerg- uh, a ferning test, which apparently amniotic fluid under a microscope looks like a fern of the plant. Uh, but it wasn't doing that. And they're like, no, no, you're not, your water's not broken. I'm like, I don't believe you. I don't actually believe you. Um, and it wasn't... And the ultrasound had shown that the baby... Twin A was squished. Like there was very little room, very little fluid inside his sac. Um, and, uh, but they finally decided that, okay, fine. It might be the water. And so I, they sent me to see perinatologist, all the resident OBs who were there and all the, everyone's, they're all like, you need to terminate. You need to terminate Twin A. We can, just terminate him and give the girl it was the boy who who's water broke and they're like, you need to give the girl a be- the best best chance that she can have and you need to terminate him. I was like, there's no way I am terminating him. I know he's gonna be okay somehow. I don't know how, but I know. And also like I've been through this before and I can't make that decision again. Like there's I just can't it's too devastating it's too difficult and I just don't see how having a dead baby inside of me for 20 weeks is any less painful than potentially giving birth to a stillborn and potentially having him only live a short while once he's born like it just I don't I don't get it Um, and they all just kind of give me the stink eye and they're like, Oh, but you, you really need to give the girl a better chance and you you're at high risk for infection now and, and all this stuff. And I'm like, no, no, I'm keeping both of them. And fortunately my own OB um, and my midwife, they were so incredibly supportive, like just amazing. Um, And they indulged me with every single, every single time I wanted a Doppler, Uh, test or an ultrasound test they would they would give it to me and and you know like my OB had given me the list of options for for what I could do and termination was on her list but just kind of like these are your options and as soon as I said there's absolutely no way categorically no way I am terminating she's like okay fine we're doing this here we go here's what you need to do and she was she was phenomenal and my midwives were phenomenal. Um, And I went on bed rest and I drank a lot of water because one of the things the OB told me was that amniotic fluid is baby urine. Who knew? Um, So she's like, if you make your baby pee, they will produce amniotic fluid. And even though it will be a continuous leak out, you'll be continuously replenishing it. And it'll never be at the levels that it technically should be, but as long as they have a little bit and as long as they can get fluid into their lungs to help their lungs grow, um, your your chances of their survival is way, way higher. So I drank liters and liters and liters of water and apple juice and coconut water, just like anything that would hydrate me and, and keep the baby peeing. Um, and I did nothing. I sat on my couch. I snuggled my bunny. Um, I had started writing my graphic novel, um, about my fertility journey called catalog baby. Um, so I did a lot of writing and a lot of sketching, um, and had lots of friends come in to visit, did a lot of puzzles, Did a lot of reading, did a lot of sleeping, watched a little, way too many Netflix shows. Um, and had a few emergency visits as well Um, and one of them landed me in the hospital for about three days because it was a really big solution. there was there was blood in it as well Um, but the babies ended up being okay and my OB advocated for me and by this time I think I was like 21 weeks or something which is two weeks before viability 20 or 21 21 weeks two weeks before viability and they won't save a baby if they're born before 23 weeks. But she got the nursing team, uh, which normally won't take patients unless they're at least 23 weeks, to come to my house every single day, every day, and check for the heartbeats, and check my temperature, and check, make sure I didn't have an infection, make sure everything was OK. Um, and I'm so grateful for that. Like, What a service. What an amazing, incredible service. Um, and they did this for seven weeks, every single day. They had a team of nurses. One would come every single day. Um, and then one day I splooshed and bled way too much. And the nurse who came was like, you are going to the hospital and you're going right now and you're not leaving until you give birth. So I did, I had to leave my rabbit behind. I had to find a house sitter like right away because my poor bunny would have been left abandoned um, and I couldn't have that. And I stayed in the hospital for eight weeks and one of the things that my OB had also forced upon me was a calendar and stickers. And she's like, every night you need to put a sticker on, the day that just went by, because that is a day that you and the baby survived. And you need to be able to uh, look back on this calendar and see how far you've gone. And it was was a lifesaver. Because otherwise you get lost in the days and you get lost in in worry and you get lost in the stress. and, And it allows you to see how many weeks you've gone and how many more weeks Or you know like once I hit viability I was like oh thank god and then once I hit 25 weeks and then 30 weeks it was just like every time I could see that as a tangible thing it was just it was such a relief um and then at 32 weeks and four days I went into labor and Uh, they took me into an emergency c-section and I yeah it was it was crazy town I labored for until I was about four centimeters um, which I appreciated having at least a little bit of experience having experienced that um, because of the rest of it was nothing I would ever have imagined So they got me open and they got Isaac out and I didn't even get to see him. They whisked him away so fast. And when I looked at the photographs that my friend took later on, there was a team of like five or six doctors around him, intubating him, making sure he's breathing, making sure he stays alive, bagging him. Um, And my poor daughter, she did not want to come out. she apparently rolled away. For four minutes, she kept rolling away from the doctors and refusing to be caught. She's like, no, leave me alone. I'm warm and cozy in here. Go away. And uh, so she finally, the moment they called Code Pink, which is more hands on deck, that she let herself be caught. So they canceled the Code Pink, fortunately. But um, her again, I think they like lifted her up above the drape for like two seconds. I got to see her for two seconds. And then they whisked her away because she's tiny. She was like, three pounds and made sure that she could be, she was breathing and that she was safe. And and then they whisked, you know, once they had sewn me up, they whisked me away to the recovery room and I had to be there for whatever it is, two hours or something before they could wheel me and me still on the bed uh, into the NICU where the babies had been installed. And both of them, uh Isaac was intubated and Abigail had a CPAP which is like a, a respiratory aid um on her and both of them were incubators and all I could do was touch their hand that's all I could do and I'm lying down I couldn't I couldn't get up I couldn't sit up I could turn my head from one baby to the other I could reach out and touch their fingers and that was it and not even for very long, because um, then I was wheeled to a whole different ward at the hospital to sleep. Um, and then we spent two, two months in the NICU. Abigail was good. She just needed to feed and grow. Her breathing apparatus came off after nine hours, I think. Um, and she just needed to feed and grow. And then Isaac had tubes coming out of everywhere. He had chest tubes. He had They said he had the lungs of a 23-weeker, and he was 32 weeks. So he had a lot of uh, lung growing to do, and they were really unhealthy. But he was a fighter. He was amazing. Um, I couldn't hold him for the first 10 days, but when I got my first double cuddle, it was spectacular, absolutely spectacular. Um, And, yeah, he... After two months, he was ready to leave the hospital, and now the two, the three of us are home. They're two years old now. Um, one of them is currently crying her face off because with with a sitter because uh, we're in the midst of toilet training. <laughs> it's a whole bunch of fun, uh, but they're amazing kids, and both of them are healthy and strong and hilarious and adorable and. Um, yeah, I think it was an epic journey to get there and not ever, not once, even after the babies were born, was it ever a hundred percent guaranteed that I would end up with kids. Um, and it never is. And I don't ever want to sound like that a person someone who's like and you too if you try hard enough we'll get your children because it's not true um there's always the chance that you won't get your kid that kid or kids or whatever that you want and every day I live with intense gratitude that I do have my kids and regardless of how hard it is um because I am a single mom by choice and I'm raising them essentially on my own. And especially with COVID, there's like no childcare. Um, my boyfriend now helps. Um, like when, when I was, when the babies were eight months old, I met somebody and, and he's been really, really helpful um, over the last several months, helping with the kids. But essentially Monday to Friday, I'm with them alone, uh, with the kids alone. Um, And I still consider myself to be a single mother by choice. I don't think that will ever go away, no matter what happens with the relationship. Um, yeah. So that's basically my story.
0: I think that's an understatement to be honest. Oh my goodness, girl. Well, I am so happy for you. What a journey, what a story. If somebody wants to reach out to you, where could they do so?
1: uh so i have a website catalogbabynovel.com um and my email is miriam m-y-r-i-a-m at catalogbabynovel.com um and the book is now uh available for pre-sales through all the online platforms and that's on my website so you can find it on amazon you can find it on barnes and noble you can find it on can't remember what the name is for the independent bookstore one but it's available for sale or if you live in Vancouver BC um you can buy it directly from me as well um yeah yeah but feel free to send me an email and and I don't know if you have any way of uh sharing the email
0: yes I was just gonna say I can link um any links that you want to send me when we get off of this call um I'll link them in the description of this episode okay perfect so thank you so much Miriam like oh thank I you so appreciate it and by the way I usually go to Vancouver like once a year obviously COVID has changed that a little bit but we yeah. up. I would love to <laughs> yeah it'd be awesome yeah. all right yeah. we'll talk soon Thank you so much for listening. If you want to share your life after miscarriage story, go to ShellyMetling.com. Click on the life after miscarriage tab and add yourself right to the recording schedule. And I can't wait to chat with you soon. Next one.